on the great road of Buddhas and ancestors, there is always unsurpassable practice, continuous and sustained. It forms the circle of the way and is never cut off between aspiration, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana. There is not a moment's gap. Continuous practice is the circle of the way. So begins Gyoji, continuous practice by Dogen. Gyoji is part of, or continuous practice, is part of the Shobogenzo, the magnum opus of Ehe Dogen, also called Dogen Zenji. Zenji is a title bestowed upon a high-ranking Zen monk or priest, um, particularly a high, <coughs> highly regarded uh, monk by the imperial court, also an ancestor. Uh, Ehe, the Ehe is uh, the mountain. Uh, Eheji is where Dogen Zenji's monastery is. Uh, it's in Fukui in Japan. And so he's named after the mountain, which is pretty typical. If you, um, if you remember the lineage chart, Tian Tong Rujing, right before Ehe, Tian Tong is the name of the monastery that Rujing was at. So when chosen in Hogan, our Buddha ancestors, they can be named after this mountain. So Shobogenzo means treasury of the true Dharma eye. It was written between 1231 and 1253. 1253 is when Dogen Zenji died at age 53. And the essays in the Shobo are delivered as sermons. Um, and they're commonly referred to as fascicles. And a fascicle means uh, that they were written they weren't written as a book. They were written in, for various things and compiled by his disciples. Um, collected together, there's 95 fascicles. And they cover anything, everything from monastic practice to uh, language, being, and time. Um, the equality of women and men in practice, which, which has been controversial for a long time. Dogen was very forward, very, very forward thinking about that. Maybe we can talk about that in a future talk. And so in the Shobogenzo, Dogen emphasizes the uh, Shikintaza, just sitting, and the inseparability of practice and enlightenment. Just a little bit about the fascicles, about the Shobogenzo. So it's been collected in all kinds of ways. It was written in the 1200s. And so for 400 years, it was hand copied. That would be the only way that anyone could read the Shobogenzo if there was a hand copy. Probably most monks really, I mean, mo not probably, most monks or nuns in the Soto school never read it. Um, 60 to 75 of the collection was put together by Dogen. He had a 60 version and a 75 version. Um, so if you think about these as a collection, this is what Dogen thought was important about his own writing. Um, but there's also shorter ones. There's a 91, there's a 28 one. 
you can think about it as the Soto Zen version of, um, of a Spotify mix. Like, what does he think is important? Um, so interesting, you can still see um, writing. You can still see some of the ones that Dogen actually wrote. And Kaz Tanahashi, who uh, is a Dogen translator and calligrapher, you can see his calligraphy in around the monastery in the, I think it's still in the, in the sitting area, there's the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Those are by Kaz Tanahashi. And he says that Dogen's handwriting is unbelievably meticulous. No mistakes. No mistakes whatsoever. Steady, steady, steady. So, uh, so for hundreds of years, eventually the Shobogenzo was mostly, uh, it was, came and went in terms of forgotten or emphasized. There were seek, there secret fascicles that were published later. The one about women and men's equality in practice was hidden for hundreds of years and it was published as uh, a bigger collection. Uh, Tenke Denson, who is in the lineage, um, tried to convince the Soto establishment that the Shobogenzo was actually inauthentic, mostly fake. Um, and uh, he did not win out in that. Um, for our purposes, though, Gyoji, continuous practice, is in both the 60 and 75 fascicle versions. It was part of Dogen's original mix, his original compilation of what he thought was important. And so here we are, over 700 years later, practicing Dogen Zen. And we come to practice still inspired by the search for our true home, looking for our true home, which was Dogen's aspiration, inspiration in hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of practitioners throughout space and time who practiced continuously and practiced continuously through us, through our body, through our breath. And that's what Dogen points to over and over again. We come to Sashin, we sit down and what do we find? You find a busy mind. This busy mind, like a four-year-old with a flashlight, goes all over the place, all everywhere, likes and dislikes, up and down, opinions, past and future. And this is how it is. <laughs> this is how we start Sashin. This is how we start the practice. So the mind goes all over the place like a four-year-old with a flashlight. Past and future, plans for the future, things to get done, things to keep me safe, what will keep me comfortable. 
And of course, this isn't a problem. It's just the mind. It's just what it does. Likes and dislikes, we find, I like this, I don't like that. Wants, I want this, I don't want that. I don't want that song. I like what they did. Blame, they should have, they shouldn't have. Excuses, I'm, because, I'm this because of this. I'm not this because of this. It's from the Tanha Sutta. Past, regrets, I wish I would have. I wish I didn't do that. I wish I would have done that. Judgments and criticism. Good, bad, I'm good, I'm bad, they're good, they're bad. Old conversations, made up situations. Here's what I would say about that if I would have been there. And all this, our life gets really small. It's like a prison gripped by thought hooked by thought, Shempa, I think the Tibetans call it. And what we find is that we've just become over-identified with thought. We over-identify with our thoughts. We believe them, most of them. We believe most of them, all of them, almost all of them, we believe. This is the activity of the mind, and our practice allows us to see into this. It's important that we understand the right view that we aren't a problem that needs to be fixed. We're not defective. Our mind isn't defective. Our thoughts aren't defective. We're not a problem that needs to be fixed. Like my teacher Hogan says, when I first started practicing, Zen is not a self-improvement project. We're not trying to fix ourselves. We're trying to see more and more of who we really are. That just becomes, that gets covered over by the judgments and criticisms, the blame, the regret, all of that. It's not that those thoughts are a problem. We over-identify with them. So it's important to have a good attitude about thoughts, even as we work with them and work to see through them. Ayakema, who is in our women's lineage, has this to say about thoughts. Each thought is a teacher. Ayakema says, each thought, each thought is a teacher. First of all, it teaches us about the unruliness of our mind, that our mind is not reliable and dependable. It thinks thoughts we don't even want to think. When we would, rather, when we would much rather be totally calm and collected, the first thing we can learn about our mind is that it isn't such a wonderful part of us as we might have imagined just because we have learned, can remember, and can understand certain facts and concepts. It is also an unruly, unreliable mind, not doing what we want it to do. The second thing to understand 
is that we don't have to believe our mind. We don't have to believe all these thoughts that come up. They have come without our invitation and they'll go away again by themselves. They have little purpose, especially during meditation. Some of them might be 20 years old. Anybody experience that? Old, just old reliable in there. Huh? Yeah, there's that again. Some of them might be pure fantasy. You know what, if I were in that situation, this is what I would have done. Some might be rather unpleasant and some might be dreams. Some might be like phantoms that won't even appear properly. They all come so quickly that there's hardly time to label them. So why believe all the stuff that one usually thinks? In meditation, we have the opportunity to get to know the mind, the thinking that's going on, and learn not to get involved in it. Not to become too involved with thinking. So our thoughts are not a problem. It's a matter of renegotiating our relationship with our thinking mind. So we begin the practice by becoming more and more present in our time together. We have emphasized concentration, becoming more and more present with the experience of the body, because the body is where our life is. It's only in the present. The body can't be in the past although there was somebody there. And the body cannot be in the future, although we hope it will be. <laughs> the body is only in the present, only ever in the present moment. So that is a way to bring the mind back from, the, from future thinking, from fantastical thinking, from past rumination, bringing it over and over again into the direct experience of the body, not as an idea. The sensations, the real sensations of sitting, of breathing, of feeling the hands. So the object is the body, our seat, our hands, the breath, So for meditation, it's really important that we begin with the posture, that we establish a posture that's suitable for meditation. We're not just plopping down and crossing our legs. That the meditation, that the posture itself is meditation. And there are many practical ways to establish this. And I'm hoping, I think that one of the things that is difficult about um, sitting at home is that we only have our own, um, we only have ourselves to reflect. We, uh, when we're sitting together with other people, we can really um, be inspired by, by the way others are sitting. So it's good to check in when you first sit down to check in with your posture. Is your cushion high enough? Most people need a high cushion. Um, the hips tipped forward, 
allowing the belly room to breathe, the back upright but not rigid. Uh, and if you're sitting in a chair, please sit on the edge of a chair. And, and sometimes you need to put a cushion to allow the hips to tip forward. Uh, Dogen Zenji talks about tying your robes loosely. I think our corollary for that is to wear drawstring pants or scrubs. When I first came to practice, I, was, I um, <laughs> went to the Dharma Center and wore scrubs that I think, um, and so I was like mistaken for a doctor for, <laughs> for like maybe a couple of years. But say like, do you know that guy who's a doctor? <laughs> I think that they were like, yeah, I think they were, yeah, they were like from Goodwill. Um, but they're very comfortable for sitting. And um, so not having, it's really, this is it's really important, eyes open. So for those of you who are sitting at home, if it's distracting to have the screen with your eyes and meditate with your eyes open, when you're sitting, it's fine to put your back to the screen. I mean, it would be like just being in a Soto Zendo, Zendo where you're sitting facing the wall. So meditating with the eyes open. And uh, Tibetan teacher, if you, uh, to um, establish the kind of the energetic feeling of it, I like uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher, talks about sitting in a regal way, sitting with a sense of regalness. You can just, it just changes the, the attitude. And so establish that before you begin, when you sit down before the bell, this is what you can be doing, establishing this. And a proper posture helps to settle the mind. This is from Shoto Harada Roshi, one of our, one of, uh, Hogan and Chosen studied with him for many, many, many years, and he's uh, in the founder's room. Let's see. When you start a period of meditation, particularly if you are a beginner, straighten your spine by leaning forward slightly, then leave your pelvis tipped forward and your lower back curved in as you bring the rest of your trunk to an upright position, rocking forward and backward until the proper point of centeredness. Some practitioners find themselves sleepy, unfocused, or full of scattered thoughts nearly every time they sit. I've found that almost always this is because their back is not curved in and their center line is off. When sitting is, um, when the flow is present, when the flow is present, the back straightens naturally and the entire body comes into proper balance with the center line the lower position taut and firm, the chi flowing freely, and the upper trunk straight, light, and relaxed. The mind too becomes settled, and extraneous thoughts are minimized. In contrast, when you sit in a careless fashion, inattentive to the details of posture, 
your chi, your energy, which should flow freely throughout your system, stagnates. This makes it difficult to bring the body into proper balance and causes painful stiffness in the shoulders and neck. The stability of the lower trunk is thus disturbed, causing a loss of balance in the entire body. You feel unsettled and overreact emotionally. Even the ordinary activities of daily life become difficult. By maintaining this posture, not only during Zazen, but in daily life, in walking, in working, in all other activities, you remain centered in your lower abdomen. So your upper body feels fresh and light and you are filled with a sense of clarity. So the posture is important that we engage in a, in, it helps us to engage in a purposeful way. So have an object of meditation and be clear about what it is. The body, as we've been instructing, talking about, our seat, feeling ourselves being held by the earth, the sensations of sitting, touches, warmth, solidity, the stability, the shimmering aliveness of the body, sitting. Or breath, a place where the breath is most vivid for you, the nostrils, the throat, chest, the hara, tanden, or the whole body breathing. If you don't know where to put it, uh, go low. Keep the awareness low in the body, the breath low in the body. Um, Harada Roshi goes on to say about this. Let us move on to the matter of aligning the breath. Settled, well-regulated breathing is basic to Zen practice and is vital to the realization of the inner essence of Zazen. When the breath is disturbed, it is impossible to observe things accurately and make appropriate judgments. Moreover, shortness of breath often leads to shortness of temper. One loses one's sense of perspective and reacts solely on the basis of immediate circumstances. And, um, and if uh, we, we know this in terms of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system and the way that um, the stress reaction, stress physiology, is that the breath gets really high up. So the more that we can practice allowing the, the body, just allowing the breath to be relaxed, um, it takes practice. So regulating your respiration means maintaining your breath in a relaxed, unobstructed flow, regardless of the situation you find yourself in. So the breath affects our state of mind. Now we don't have to do anything but pay attention. So this isn't a matter of now I need to get my breath right. It's just a matter of paying close attention and relaxing, relaxing, relaxing the body, relaxing. Even now could can feel the feel the belly get taut, relax. So, 
for some people, the breath is, um, may have difficulty with the breath, practicing with the breath. So feeling the hands, the touches, temperatures, like you're wearing hand, like you're wearing your hands like gloves. Right? Just feeling, feeling them. And then the, then being meticulous in the practice with loving kindness, with friendliness, paying close attention, appreciation. We can appreciate the breath. Maizumi Roshi said, appreciate your life, appreciate the breath. And by appreciation means paying close attention, close um, reverence, not the right word. It's like when you appreciate a piece of music, you listen to, you try and listen to all of it. Catch all the little, little bits in it, the spaces in between, the way that they did the beats, the way the bass line is, the way the strings are. How do they sneak that sample in? Is paying very close attention or a painting, looking at the technique. We can look at our breath in this way. One way that we can practice with paying close attention is by doing it in short bursts uh, called concentration sprint. And this can be a way to help establish concentration because it's very difficult to just sit down. We're not a breath machine. Um, we're not a machine. And so by spending a short time being, paying close meticulous attention and then relaxing, we can begin to establish concentration. So if you'd like to try that now, just touching in with the breath, in breath, out breath, sensations of movement, warmth and coolness, the movement of the ribs, and the changing touch of clothing. And so for three breaths, pay very, 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 very close attention to the breath. And then after those three breaths, just relax the mind. Whenever you're ready, three breaths. And then when you're ready to do another three breaths,
paying very close attention, drawing near, near, close, close. Relax. Doing concentration sprints in this way, we can establish ever more meticulous, fine-grained, fine-tuned concentration. And then we become, as Hogan was talking about, absorbed absorbed in the object of meditation, absorbed, immersed, samadhi. Become immersed in the experience of breath. It's not dull and frozen. This is not about becoming uh, a lump. It is vivid and alive, vivid and alive engagement with the breath. Appreciation becomes more and more interesting more and more interesting, but it's not a straight line. <laughs> it's not a like. It's not a. I'm getting more and more concentrated. I mean, in a, in the long run, it's it's like that, but it's it's kind of that we have our ups and downs. I guess is the main thing. So why do this? Why concentrate? What's the point? Well, one thing that's nice about it is that a concentrated mind allows the uh, concentration allows the mind to settle down. It's like um, it's like those souvenirs of snow globe, right? The sort of constant activity causes the mind to the thoughts to whirl around, and so by sitting in a place of acceptance and appreciation as opposed to reactivity and moving away from the mind begins to settle down and one thing that happens as part of that is it really gladdens the heart we become less stressed out the body relaxes and because we're practicing with a family a friendly attitude this can imbue our sitting less reactivity, we're not believing our thoughts, we can even uh, experience our thoughts with a sense of humor or um, humility. Like here it comes again, that same thought. <laughs> so all, all these are steps to gain insight. As Hogan likes to say, Samadhi is not liberation. It's not only about calming down. However, Samadhi is established in order for insight. And what insight is looking deeply into our life. The isness of things. We can look at the mind. So Ayakema, she says, 
All these are ways to gain insight, to be used not while the mind stays on the breath, but while it is reacting to feelings or thinking. Let me read that again. All these are ways to gain insight, to be used not while the mind stays on the breath, but while it is reacting to feelings or thinking. So the, the reactivity is part of the, part of the process. Every moment can be used to gain insight, and from that, calm arises. Every moment can be used to gain insight, and from that, calm arises. A bit of insight creates a bit of calm, and then calm creates insight. When we see that we don't need to pay attention to any of our thoughts, it becomes easier to drop them. When we see that we don't have to react to feelings, it is much easier to drop the reaction. A bit of calm also creates a bit of insight, and both have to be used. So the concentrated, absorbed mind becomes the base camp for exploration of our life. And the questions that we have becomes the base camp for exploring our true home. More and more present to the activity of the mind, Zen is to look at the mind, look at what is, not our story about it. We can see the activity of the mind, we can disidentify with it. So what is this life without the story? What is my life without my story about it? Who am I if I drop the story I have about this body? Who am I if I drop the story without the story I have about this mind? Who are those people if I drop my story about them? Who is this person before me without my thoughts about them? Who am I without these thoughts about me? We become more and more are able to approach things from a place of pure mind, Buddha mind, natural mind, I really love uh, Shunda Aoyama. She has a book called Zen Seeds, Reflections of a Female Priest. She's um, a Soto Zen priest and abbess in Japan. She's still alive in her 80s, might be pushing 90. And she is um, a giant in terms of training women uh, nuns and priests in Japan and is uh, more and more recognized. Oh, we could do a whole talk about Aoyama. Maybe that will happen too. <laughs> she, her, she talks about um, this attitude So all of these stories get in the way of us seeing our natural mind, our natural way of being, our natural self, who we really are, is covered over by reactivity, regrets, 
thoughts that we believe. Self, and it's all about the self. It's all this self-making project. So when we disidentify with our thoughts, I am not that, then who am I? We become less and less <laughs> stuck. So uh, I like this metaphor. She says, um, if people would just discard their selfish criteria and look carefully at flowers and grasses, they would see that heaven and earth bless the life of every flower and blade of grass and that these things are wonderful. So it is with human beings. Because they live, people experience gain and loss, love and hatred, joy and anger, relief and sorrow. Each of these experiences is an important tool in our irreplaceable lives. Hideo Kobayashi, a cultural critic, she goes on to say, says that a leaf from a tree can hide the moon. If we place a leaf over our eyes, it is so close that we cannot see it as it is. A leaf over our eyes can shut out the moon and the world around us too. If we hold the leaf away from us, however, we see the leaf as it is. So it is with other things, mountains, rivers, the moon, clouds, all are visible if we remove the leaf from our eyes. And Gyoji is continual, continual practice. So Aoyama Roshi says about continual, what does continually mean? It does not mean perfect. Continually does not mean without stopping, as in driving a car. When we go down the road of life, we cannot expect the traffic lights always to be green. Sometimes we have to stop at the red light of illness, even if at first we are resolute. As soon as we run into trouble and the situation looks bleak, some of us say, it's no use, and perhaps despair and give up. But stopping, retreating, or making a wide detour is more enriching and gives us far more inner strength than traveling down a straight and easy road. But stopping, retreating, or making a wide detour is more enriching and gives us far more inner strength than traveling down a straight and easy road. So our challenge is we may not like them, but they are part of continual practice. And we don't know what riches, how they enrich our life and allow the wisdom that comes from them So one way that we've talked also about uh, continuous practice is by doing, uh, engaging in mindfulness tasks, mindful eating is one that we've been recommending. Chosen says that mindful eating is deliberately paying attention to what you're eating or drinking without criticism or judgment. And for those of you practicing at home, I really recommend, and everyone here too, take up the practice of mindful eating or, or some kind of mindfulness task because it's very easy to, to have the attitude that a practice is when I'm on the cushion. And 
um, which is, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's fine to practice on the cushion, but um, the, the continuing to practice, by having that attitude, we divide our life. It's another way to cut ourselves in two, that this is my practice life and my practice, and it's in a little box, and then the other parts of my life are in those boxes. So more and more, by establishing continual practice on the cushion, off the cushion, so mindful eating, even if you're, that's something that you can do in the midst of uh, roommates or children, even just, just having three bites, just having three bites, returning, just tasting, having touch temperature, putting awareness in the mouth. Another one is loving hands, practicing loving hands, washing hands or washing the dishes with loving hands, the kinds of hands that you might use to take care of a small child or as a caretaker for someone, touching them with kindness, touching the dishes with kindness, touching yourself with kindness, the way that we, there's so often we just throw our clothes on and brush our teeth, taking care of our body. So mindful eating, loving hands, and another is renunciation of the mindless, news, a news fast, sports, social media, all the, all the things that we do to distract ourselves. So we don't need to be too rigid about it, especially if we're practicing with someone else in our household. Um, so find something that's simple and easy, and it helps to write a note. <laughs> it helps to write post-it notes <laughs> to remind ourselves. You can put a heart on a post-it note for loving hands above the sink. Um, or uh, just put you know, a note by on your table where you're having your breakfast. And this is no small thing, as Chosen says, mindfulness is a basic aspect of what we call awakening. That is, living life with awareness instead of being on autopilot. When we step out of autopilot and into awareness, we begin to have choice. My new slogan is, awareness brings choice and choice brings freedom. So what is this continuous practice? Gyoji Dokan. Gyoji, Gyo means Buddhist practice and Ji means preservation and maintenance. Together they mean continuously engaging in the practice. Just as it is. Just a final bit from from it. Dogen says, even after, he tells the story of the sixth ancestor of Zen, Hui Neng. Hui Neng was um, an illiterate, uh, and the story goes that he was illiterate woodcutter and uh, heard a verse of a sutra and was so moved he went to the monastery 
and he was put in the kitchen and pounded rice for six years. And um, one thing led to another, <laughs> and he uh, became a great ancestor in Zen. Dogen says in Gyoji, in continuous practice, even he, even after he, Huineng, the sixth ancestor, emerged from the kitchen to becoming a great Zen teacher, even after Huineng emerged in the world and expounded Dharma to awaken people, he did not neglect this grinding stone. His continuous practice was rare in the world. And so, uh, Reverend Ishii, uh, Soto professor says, Dogen Zenji says that even after he became the sixth ancestral teacher, Huineng always carried the grinding stone that he had used for polishing rice as a servant under his master, Hongren. This episode is a complete fiction created by Dogen Zenji. There is no similar account in any of the biographical materials about Huineng. In this description by Dogen Zenji, it is very clear that the word gyoji con means continuous practice of discovering one's original face. So Dogen Zenji is not talking about Huineng carrying around a big stone. <laughs> He's saying that Huineng continued to practice. There wasn't the grinding stone of that was not separate from him being, it was not separate. There wasn't, the, the, well, there wasn't that practice and then the better practice. There was just continual practice. The grinding stone was his practice. He didn't surpass it. There wasn't something better. This is the thing that Hogan talked about, the isness of things, the isness of reality. There's no better practice than the one that you are wholeheartedly doing on the cushion here. Breath after breath, heartbeat after heartbeat, so please engage in continuous practice of returning over and over again with kindness, with kindness, please with kindness to the direct experience of this body, this breath, concentrated, determined, meticulous, continuous. There is no better, bigger practice than the one you do right now being present. Please, please continue.